Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The same way that people whose friends are accused of gruesome acts have a hard time incorporating those accusations into their assessments of their friends. I feel like people who supported Bill Clinton and people who saw him as, I don't want to say hero, but like basically the opposite of a villain. I think emotionally it's a hard thing to accept. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, Mr. Klein. Thank you for being here. A bit of housekeeping. Uh, I've been matching this job a little bit recently, but I only mention it because it is important and because I think somebody in the audience might be the right person for it. We are looking for a head of audio, an EP of audio at Vox. That role will have a lot of responsibilities here. It'll be driving our shows, the expansion of our shows, but it'll have a lot of role in this show specifically, working with me to try to think about what it can be, where it should go next. So I'd certainly love to find somebody who's already familiar with it. Um, if that sounds like you, if you've got the background and the interest in that role, uh, go to voxmedia.com. There's a careers tab there. Again, voxmedia.com to check it out. All right, the show today, my guest, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for a while. Leon Nafok. You may know Leon as the host of the amazing podcast, Slow Burn, part of the Slate Network. Uh, Slow Burn, it had a season one that was all about Watergate and trying to sort of reconstruct Watergate by looking at side players, bit players, bit stories, weird little alleys that were around it. It was a really interesting way of getting at what it must have been like to live that period. Season two was about the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandals, but also about Paula Jones and a little bit about Jennifer Flowers. And then ultimately, and and we talk about this quite a bit, Juanita Broderick, it's a conversation about how to think about history. It's a conversation about how contingent and weak our ability to actually know what's going on is, and, and then thus how weakened political accountability is. It's a show about how liberals should feel about Bill Clinton. Um, not just liberals, anybody. How should anybody feel about Bill Clinton? Knowing what we know about some of what he's done, knowing some of the allegations that are out there against him, and having the lens we have in society right now on it. So we have a kind of difficult conversation about that, but I think it's an important one for people to be having. This show, it's a nice opportunity. I'm recording this before the election, just a couple days before it. By the time it comes out, we will probably know the the results of the election. But because everything is so nuts right now in, in politics at this moment, it is good, I think, to take a couple steps back and try to think about 
the broader context of American politics. What have crazy periods in American politics felt like before? And what can they teach us about navigating this particular one right now? I don't think anybody's been doing a better job of this than Leon. He's a really, really thoughtful, brilliant guy. And it was a thrill to have him on the show. I'm such a fan of Slow Burn. So it was also just great to get to ask him all of my questions about it. So here, without further ado, is Leon Nafok. Leon Nafok, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. So I, I want to begin with something that we just began talking about before we we hit record here, which is what is Slow Burn about? Like, what is the, <laughs> the thesis of the project? Uh, well, it's something we're working out right now as we try to figure out what our next season will be about. The first one, obviously, was about Watergate uh, and Richard Nixon. The second one was about Clinton. And so perhaps the show uh, in its most narrowly defined form is about presidents being impeached or presidents being almost impeached. But hopefully it's about something broader than that because we would like to keep doing it. Um, And if we were just doing presidential impeachments, there would only be one more to do. And it's not one that lends itself particularly well to an audio documentary that features archival footage and interviews with living people. So we're kind of are trying to figure out, you know, is it about political scandals? Is it about just major historical events that people sort of half remember or they, they know the beginning and the end, but not the middle? And that's sort of what we're trying to figure out. I mean, there are certain goals that we had in, in season one and season two that I think we'd like to maintain. One of them is that we like to put our listeners in the minds of people who live through the events we're covering, right? So we don't like to jump ahead. Uh, we don't like to foreshadow too much. We don't like to bring in information that uh, the people we're talking about could not have known at the time. That's sort of the big one. You know, the other sort of feature, I think, of, of, of both seasons so far has been that they featured peripheral characters uh, as much as, if not more, than the sort of central players, right? So we took like a sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern approach, uh, particularly with season one, that I think kind of was exciting because it revealed that there is all this uh, material sort of hiding under rocks that we can turn over and bring quite familiar and, and uh, well-known stories to life in a new way. Did you ever read um, Elizabeth Drew's Washington Journal? Sure. Yeah, that was a that was a great resource for us. I mean, that book had roughly the same approach, which was like trying to capture what it was like to live through it. And we interviewed uh, Elizabeth Drew for the for the first season, and she was very funny. She she ended up being absolutely great, uh, and, I, and I loved having her on the show. But she was, in a funny way, she was resistant to revisiting certain, which she decided were kind of insignificant details, uh, atmospheric stuff that she felt was like beside the point. Uh, <laughs> so I had to really coax her into going into that stuff, even though it's you know the, the book is full of that stuff. Uh, she, she's been on this show before too, and she's a she's a dear friend. Yeah. Um, but one thing I love so much about that book and, and that I think about with Sloburn is that there's a real difference between history as a story you tell after the fact, where you know what is important in the story, and history as the messy experience you live, where you never know what is important at the time and you're not even sure what's true. And it's funny because Washington Journal, it's written contemporaneously with Watergate. And so you constantly see like people not knowing what's true and like following down blind alleys. And now in retrospect, we know what the story of Watergate was, or or at least we think we do. And one thing that I, I find fascinating about the Soburn Project is that it seems to be trying to do history in that way. History not as a story where we know the beginning and the end, but what was it like? to live through it when we didn't know the beginning and the end? Like, how would you even have known what was important at that time? That's right. Uh, and I think the, the the reason we gravitated towards that 
approach in, in season one, the, re- the reason it was sort of baked into the project from the beginning was that our animating question was, did living through Watergate feel anything like what it feels like to live through today? And so that was sort of the the thing we wanted to get at. And, and, and as a result, I think that led us to, you know, restricting ourselves to the perspectives of the people who were alive at the time and not uh, kind of jumping around too much in the chronology or being omniscient as narrators. One of the big problems, I think I'm going to call it a problem. One of the big problems Soburn raises for me is the contingency of all of our political knowledge, which is when you're looking at Watergate, there's so much we almost didn't know. It is so accidental that those tapes were there. And even though those tapes were found out about it, it is so accidental that the burglars were such idiots. It is so accidental that John Dean decided to flip in the way he did. When you look at Bill Clinton, similarly, there's so much there that you could completely imagine it never having come out. And it feels like we have these very near misses with having never known about any of this at all. And it makes me wonder how many things like this we did never know about at all. I'm I'm curious if doing the show has changed your view about what is out there to know. Absolutely. And and I think you're you're absolutely right that season one in particular seems full of these kind of forks in the road where, you know, events happen to go one way and not the other. Uh as we were making that first season, we were in production while the episodes were coming out. Uh, and so I would see people's reactions to the episodes that we were releasing. And I noticed that people were sort of talking about how they felt reassured by the show because it showed that it showed that, well, you know, the country went through this extremely traumatic and confusing and chaotic time before where the government, you know, the federal government was embroiled in this uh, really distracting and divisive scandal and that we came out uh, in one piece and that, you know, the thing that was supposed to happen did. But by the end of, you know, by the end of production, by the time we were done with episode eight, it was very clear to me that the outcome of the story, you can't say it was an accident, but it wasn't inevitable in any way. And as you say, it was sort of brought about through one coincidence or, or stroke of luck uh, after another. You know, I, I, one thing I, I talked about during our recent live tour was, how does history work? How does the plot get written? You know, is it a function of this sort of Rube Goldberg machine of of coincidences and kind of arbitrary uh, events kind of crashing into each other and mixing together to give us, you know, the outcomes then, that then look uh, preordained? Is it a function of um, personalities, right? So, like, if it hadn't been Monica Lewinsky, would it have been someone else because that's who Clinton is and, and was? Or is it, a, you know, a matter of institutions where, you know, when you have a independent counsel's office and you have the Supreme Court and a president under investigation, like those chess pieces are going to are going to interact in certain predictable ways. And I think it's obviously the answer is all of the above. And you can't really come into one one theory or the other. But as far as uh, what comes out uh, as the story unfolds, it's certainly the result of individual decisions, I think, from, you know, when you when you think about people who are deciding to leak certain information to reporters uh, or decisions that editors make uh, when they assign stories or green light stories. You know, with, with the Clinton story, uh, you had multiple instances where editors were reluctant to allow reporters to go with a scoop. I mean, Michael Iskoff is sort of the best example where he was eager to uh, write about Paula Jones, whereas his editors were a little bit hesitant to let him run with it. And same thing happened with Monica Lewinsky uh, a couple of years later. So it certainly makes me kind of approach the news in a more humble way where 
I don't assume that the things that I'm reading about uh, on the front page are the most important things that are happening. Like I, I did an interview recently where someone was asking me about, you know, to compare where the Mueller investigation is right now to where Archibald Cox was at this stage. And, and I just didn't even know how to answer because like, it's very obvious to me that I have no idea what's happening in that office. And given how disciplined they've been about uh, sharing information with reporters, no one really does. I love that line you had a minute ago, how does history actually work? I've been reading Jill Lepore's book, These Truths, which is really, really great, this one-volume history of, of the United States. And she talks about how history is simply what was written down, or at least what was preserved that we can go back and look at. Um, kind of random diarists become very important because their diaries get preserved. Very important people who lost all their papers, they kind of fade from history. There, there's a whole theory that one reason Aaron Burr looks like such a villain now is that his um, papers were like the drowned in the sea in a shipwreck. And one of the things that I think that raises as a question is just how much of our political scandals, put aside institutions and all the rest of it, they're about whether or not something got recorded, whether or not something got got said in a place where it can be verified, whether or not somebody had contemporaneous notes. Like mm -hmm. I'm always amazed at how much Jim Comey having written down notes at the time when he was having these conversations with Donald Trump became really important. That, that gave them a gravity that him just coming out and saying, here's how I remember the conversation it wouldn't have had. And I, I don't exactly know where you go with that, but there like anybody, I think, halfway competent um, trying to commit political conspiracy and listening to all this, what they would learn from it is just don't write anything down. Make sure <laughs> that nobody else is writing anything down. Just make those not a record so everything just ends up feeling like he said, she said. Yeah, I think that would be a good lesson for uh, potential conspirators. I mean, there's a, to me, famous uh, Simpsons scene where all the bad kids like the bullies and, you know, led by Nelson are driving a stolen car and one of them is has a camcorder in his hands and he goes, videotaping this crime spree was the best idea we ever had. <laughs> um, and I, I thought about that a lot with, obviously, with the Nixon tapes, where if not for them, if not for the fact that they were discovered and if not for the, ultimately, the ability of the, of the Independent Council and the House Judiciary Committee to make them public and, and sort of bring them into the record, I don't know. I, it seems very hard for me to imagine that Nixon would have, felt the pressure he ended up feeling to resign. So I just want to hold on that idea yeah. for a second, because this is something I believe too, but I want I want us to say it really explicitly. If it had not been the case that who was it who who mentioned the Nixon tapes in testimony? I always forget. Alexander Butterfield. He was uh, a very a very well, I'll say a relatively low level aide uh, who had helped, I believe, install the uh, the device. So if Alexander Butterfield had not offhandedly mentioned that, that everything in the White House is being taped all the time all the same things could have happened and we could have learned most of what we knew about them. Maybe not everything because there was information on the tapes and Nixon would have just survived it. And I think that raises some pretty profound questions about whether or not we have effective methods of political accountability under normal rather than evidentiarily extraordinary circumstances. Mm -hmm. The premise of your question is totally right, but I, I will say that it wasn't strictly speaking an accident that he came out with that information, right? So Alexander Butterfield. He came into that interview that he he was sitting for a private interview with with investigators from the Senate Watergate Committee, and he came in resolved to tell the truth if he was asked the specific question. And it's been a while since I went over this story, so forgive me if I get some of the details a little blurry, but I'm probably not gonna fact check you on okay. this one. <laughs> well, basically, 
there's some debate over who deserves the credit for asking the key question in that private interview, whether it was the Democratic investigator or the Republican investigator. The way the Democratic investigator tells the story, Scott Armstrong, was that he came into possession of a document, a memo that he believed to have been written by someone in the White House and provided to the Republicans on the Senate Watergate Committee staff uh, so that they would know what to ask, I believe, of John Dean, who is obviously the key witness there and and the the turncoat who was going to bring the whole thing down. The White House was providing, you know, suggestions for for questions. And as part of that, uh, they provided this memo that had verbatim quotes from a conversation that it was impossible to understand where the memo came from or where the quotes had come from if there hadn't been some kind of recording device. And so it was based on that memo, which came into the possession of this investigator because of the sort of behind the scenes efforts by the White House to steer the hearings. That was how he knew to ask the question. I should apologize to the Republican investigative staffer who also has a claim to uh, this credit, but I, I don't quite remember what that version of the story is off the top of my head. But my point is just that it wasn't that uh, Butterfield offhandedly mentioned it, but it was actually the result of a pretty substantive dynamic within the committee staff and within that invest- within that investigative effort. Let me ask you about the other side of this, though, because it goes to political accountability, too. If we had not had a Democratic Congress, would Nixon have been impeached? Or would Nixon have felt the impeachment pressure to resign? I think no. Um, and I think one of the sort of comforting myths about Watergate is that this was an era when politicians were willing to put truth over their party. And I just didn't necessarily see a whole lot of evidence of that. I mean, even even Howard Baker, the you know the senator who was famous for, for uttering this iconic question, what, what did the president know and when did he know it? That gets cast as a, as a sort of thundering demand or like almost a, an accusation by a Republican, you know, against the president. But in fact, uh, you know, everything I read and everyone I talked to indicated to me that the point of that question was, how can we really know that the president was aware of all this stuff? Oh, that's amazing. How do we really know that he is responsible for this and not someone below him? So I think there is a little bit of revisionist history as people look back on, on this bygone era of bipartisanship. Uh, in fact, it was viciously partisan and there were plenty of Republicans. I mean, most Republican elected officials were very much behind Nixon until the bitter end. I mean, including like George H.W. Bush, who I believe in December of 1973, very late in the game, was saying, you know, we got to let this man do his job. Uh, and Ronald Reagan, you know, both of these men uh, went on to have <laughs> successful careers as as presidents. You know, so that's another way in which the story is, is not as comforting as or reassuring as maybe as people want to believe it is. But this is why these stories are very chilling to me as a political journalist. So you have these terrific political scandals, these terrific examples of political corruption. It's completely imaginable to conceive that we would have never known about them. Even if we had known about them, absent the revelation of extraordinary levels of documentary evidence. It's very unlikely that we would have had the evidence to do anything about them. And if it hadn't been that the constellation of political power was that the other party was in power, nothing would have been done about it anyway. That seems like a very, it seems like a lot needs to go right in our system for politicians to be held accountable. And not much needs to go wrong for them to be able to get away with pretty extraordinary levels of corruption. 
I think that's well put. And and I think maybe the one reason for that is that the stakes are just so high for the people who are in a position to, you know, honorably cede power to the other side or people who are in a position to shore up their party or, or, or their president or, or their candidate. That's just too powerful uh, an incentive or something maybe for us to ever expect it to go any other way. You were talking about Howard Baker a couple minutes ago. There's something that you hear a lot, particularly from older hands in Washington, is the if only we had the leaders of yesteryear. If only we had Ted Kennedy, Howard Baker. There's a feeling that the quality of leadership, particularly in Congress, has degraded. As you've spent a lot of time in the history of the Congress of the 90s now and, and, and the Congress of the 70s, do you think that's true? Do you think that the quality of leadership of elected official in Washington is substantially worse than it was in these periods you're, you've been looking at? I can't confidently say yes or no, to be honest with you. There were certainly more moderates in the past. I think that we can say very safely. Even within the, the seven-member Senate Watergate Committee, you had someone like Lowell Weicker, who was a, a moderate Republican of a kind that we don't really see anymore. You also had Sam Irvin on the Democratic side, who was a segregationist, you know, and, and people, you know, people were on the left, people liberals were, were willing to kind of make him into a folk hero who, you know, as we as we feature on the show, was so popular and so iconic uh, during that summer of, of the Senate Watergate hearings that he recorded a spoken word album that was sold as a, as a record. You know, his segregationist beliefs didn't uh, necessarily attach to him in that way. That's just to say, I, I think, yes, it's true that there was more of a middle in the past. But as far as like honor and, and, and maybe you could say that there used to be more of an expectation of sort of self-possessed dignity or something. There were the, the expectation that elected officials didn't scream and threaten each other with violence the way we see candidates doing now. You know, this is like, I guess, the civility uh, argument. But substantively, I don't know. I, I, I can't confidently say that it used to be better. Well, there's also this question of what are the incentives and institutions elected officials are subject to at any given moment. And one of the counterfactuals I think about sometimes is what if we had had Watergate with Fox News? I think one thing that surprised me about the Watergate story and the Nixon administration's approach to trying to, and and the Nixon administration's attempts to uh, control it, was that for all the bashing of the press that Nixon did and Spiro Agnew did and Ron Ziegler, the the White House spokesman, did, one thing that didn't happen was any kind of concerted effort to discredit Archibald Cox, the the, uh, special prosecutor assigned to investigate Nixon. It's a real mystery to me why there was not a sort of PR campaign, you know, orchestrated by the White House to make him look like a East Coast elitist who was just out to get Nixon, a Harvard-educated patrician who was allied with Kennedy's who couldn't be trusted to come to a legitimate conclusion. Uh, Obviously, he was fired. And it's certainly true that Nixon raged against uh, Archibald Cox uh, in private, as we know from the tapes. But the absence of that public campaign is surprising. And I do think that if there had been a Fox News, maybe that would have been different because there was just would have been an extra sort of venue in which that kind of thing could have been carried out. I guess maybe your question is more about like this notion that there are now two realities or more than one or multiple realities that different people can subscribe to based on what they watch and what media diet they have. Well, it's about all of it. It's about, you know, I think about the way Fox News would have been used to create a concerted response. 
and how it would have been basically running a, a, a counter operation in the way it is on Bob Mueller. But, but I also think about the incentives elected officials on the right have to play to Fox News right now. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into this trope about how there were more leaders in another age, I often wonder whether there wasn't a system or institutions that were more conducive to what we think of as leadership. I mean, as you say, we misremember some of it anyway, like that Howard Baker quote, which I just love that story. But I also wonder if Howard Baker knew that everything he said was going to be primarily covered on Fox News and that his primary voters primarily watched Fox News, how he would have acted differently, how everybody would have acted differently. I think we think of leadership as this intrinsic trait, something that is innate to people. And of course, sometimes it is, or leaders who who, who lead against grain and uh, against extraordinary adversity. But, you know, leadership is also a product of circumstance and context. And I wonder if we've not created a circumstance and context that makes it harder for people to exercise the kind of thing that then we look back on in history and say, oh, oh, that's leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. I do think the senators, I'm sorry to be, I feel like I'm, my answers are maybe narrower than your questions are to my detriment, but I will say that I think the senators on the on the Watergate committee were certainly conscious of the fact that the country was watching very attentively. You know, people were obsessed with those hearings. They, 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 they uh, listened to them on the radio throughout the day. They watched the reruns at night. And so I think there was plenty of grandstanding. And I was reminded of that, you know, when we were watching the Kavanaugh hearings and Maybe Lindsey Graham's speech was perhaps the best example of kind of playing to the cameras that we saw. But I think there was a fair amount of that back in 73 as well. However, uh, it's hard to compare, uh, you know, a, a, a live feed of a, of a Senate proceeding to the infrastructure we have now where politicians know there is a audience of millions at any time that they can sort of rile up and, and get attention through incendiary speech and go viral by being extreme. But Lindsey Graham, I think, is such a good example of this because to me, you're completely right. He gave this rip-roaring speech for the cameras, but it was specifically for Fox News's cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you saw that because that night, like, where did he go after having had this breakout performance at the hearing? He went on Sean Hannity's show. Mm-hmm. He didn't go on the NBC Nightly News or, or somewhere else. He went on Hannity's show. That there's always this question of like, which camera are you playing to now? Um, and, and Lindsey Graham, who a lot of people think wants to be attorney general or secretary of state if after the midterms, Lindsey Graham seemed very clearly to be playing to the Fox News camera, which he also knew the, the president was going to be watching that particular camera. Mm-hmm. And if that camera hadn't been there, if Lindsey Graham knew that the only place where that speech would exist was on the, like the normal feed. Yeah. Um, he wasn't going to be able to, to, to whip up and then keep whipping up this audience that would respond to that very positively. You know, I, I wonder if he would have done it. Yeah. I mean, the, the un, unsatisfying next question is like, if it's the media environment that we can sort of credit with creating these incentives for our leaders, uh, whose fault is it? Is it the people who run those shows? Uh, is it the people watching and it's just a function of what they want are they being told what to want are they being you know trained by network executives and the political operatives who influence those executives i call it unsatisfying because it's as soon as you obviously as soon as you diagnose it as a sort of a systemic problem in which individuals are sure are making decisions but they're making them with an eye towards pushing certain buttons that are just there 
I don't know whose fault it is. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big. And if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. a little bit about Bill Clinton and season two, mm-hmm. because season two, I think, is the more challenging one for people on the left. Season one, it's like a Republican committing egregious acts of corruption and abuse of power. And there's this obvious analogy to Donald Trump. And I think that probably a lot of, of your audience was coming in and felt very comfortable listening to that, that, mm-hmm. that, that they're right about it all along. Mm-hmm. And season two has a very different valence. How is your opinion your feelings about Bill Clinton changed after digging into the sexual assault allegations against him. The fact that I feel compelled to make this rhetorical move tells you a lot. I feel like I have to answer this question first by putting aside the sexual assault allegations and then putting them back in because they're just so overwhelming. And if you are to believe them, then so little else matters. (laughs) And it becomes quite black and white. If you're able to put it aside, you can see gray area, right? You can see gray area in how you evaluate the relationship between Clinton and Lewinsky. You can be angry at Clinton for being so reckless and taking this risk, you know, over and over again when he knew that there were people watching his every move and waiting for him to give them something with which to take him down. Um, But you can also perhaps understand that from the Clintons' perspective, they were being hunted by people who who were operating in bad faith and who were willing to lie and cheat to take them down. 
And so in that sense, I, I hope that the show doesn't just kind of make people think, oh, well, Clinton you know, was just as bad as Donald Trump or, or, or something like that. Or, but I hope that for every person who does come to that conclusion, there's also people who perhaps for the first time realize just how uh, organized and I guess you know, vicious uh, the uh, anti-Clinton activism was. And so that's my answer to your question by, in which I put aside the Juanita Broderick allegations. As soon as you start taking those into account, suddenly you have to ask yourself, what is there really to talk about if, if the president raped someone? And then from that point of view, you have to, I guess, decide whether you think she's telling the truth. Do you believe Juanita Broderick's allegations? I think that if we are to apply the standards that we've kind of decided are the right ones to apply to allegations of sexual assault, then I don't know what there is to point to that makes her not credible. I mean, I think there are a few things, and and obviously we talk about them on the show, that people have pointed to that kind of give you a reason to say, well, she initially said that it didn't happen under oath. Uh, So if she said under oath that it didn't happen and then she said under oath that it did, why do you decide that for sure she was telling the truth in the second time and not the first? You can point to the fact that two of her contemporaneous corroborating witnesses, people she told about the incident at the time, had this sort of very specific, perhaps, grudge against Clinton because he had played some role in the commutation of their father's killer's prison sentence. You know, there's stuff to point to. Uh, I think a very superficial thing to point to would be her support for Donald Trump now and the fact that she's this very partisan actor. I think that is the least convincing by far, the least sort of substantive objection one can raise to her credibility because if in fact she was raped by Bill Clinton and saw her story dismissed by Democrats all these years, well, why wouldn't she be someone who hates Democrats and someone who responded positively when, when Donald Trump seemed to give credence to her allegations by trotting her out and, you know, before that debate. So, you know, that's not really an answer to your question, which was very direct. Do I believe her? And I am someone who has a hard time believing stuff that I feel like I can't really know. You know, and I think that's a, that's a really dangerous sort of orientation because it's the way you get people who believe the earth is flat because they haven't seen evidence, you know, that it's round. Sure, people have taken photos of the globe from outer space, but I wasn't the one who saw it and I, all I saw was a picture and maybe, you know, the picture is fake or whatever. But it's, I think the main thing that's stopping from saying yes, absolutely, is that it's just too overwhelming a thing to incorporate into my understanding of this politician. You know, forget that I've grown up thinking of him as, a, as someone who is on, on my side. I've grown up not thinking of him as a rapist. And I think the same way that people whose friends are accused of gruesome acts have a hard time incorporating those accusations into their assessments of their friends. I feel like people who supported Bill Clinton and people who saw him as, I don't want to say hero, but like basically the opposite of a villain, I think it's really hard. And I think emotionally it's a hard thing to accept. And I think that's the the, the note I tried to hit on the show. It sounds to me like you intellectually believe her and emotionally it's a struggle to know what to do with that conclusion. I think that's a really fair way to, to, to characterize what I just said, yeah. One of the things about Clinton, um, because I, I, I will say, so I'm not weaseling out of this, I I can't know the like details, but in broad strokes, I believe Juanita Broderick's story. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't see a reason not to. Right. Um, and more to the point, there's this long pattern of behavior with Bill Clinton that makes me think this is plausible. Right. Um, now, it, it's not a pattern of behavior usually that includes assault and steamrolling over like a physical assault. But I feel like there are these two ways to read his history, and I'm not even sure they're different. And, and it comes out a little bit in, in the show, which is there's like the Bill Clinton persona that I think got sold for most of the, the 90s. And I, I think is in some way true, which is that he's kind of a dog. You know, he's mm-hmm. a cad. Mm-hmm. He's a philanderer. And like, wasn't John F. Kennedy too? Although we should, like John F. Kennedy <laughs> has his own problems. But but that he's somebody who, you have that great part about there being these like women roundtables and in, in, in journalistic outlets about like, isn't it kind of sexy how he is and how he just loves women? And But he's got all these um, allegations of of clearly using his power and using his authority and using his prestige to convince women to have sex with him. There's also what's odd about it a little bit, what I've always found is odd about the Lewinsky affair is that there's also a sweetness to it. In a way, there's not to some of these other allegations. That there's not to Paula Jones. There's certainly not to, to Juanita Broderick. There's yeah. like they, they seem to like each other. He calls her a lot, even when they're in a period where they're not able to meet and, and have any kind of sexual contact. Right. It's it's not there seems to be an emotionality to it. He's got this weird thing where he won't orgasm with her yeah. because he's trying to, to draw some weird line in the sand about fidelity to to his wife. Yeah, I don't know what that's about, but maybe that's it. Yeah, I have no idea. That, that's just always been my, my assumption. There's something very high schoolish and, and weird about that whole thing, but it feels very there's something a little like not if you're his wife, but it, it feels like a normal kind of emotional affair. But it all exists on this spectrum from having an emotional affair with a 20-some-year-old intern to Paula Jones and things that are more like workplace sexual harassment and and then all the way to Juanita Broderick. And the thing that I find hard about the Broderick story is the detail about him like biting her lip, bruising her lip. Yeah. And then afterwards telling her, oh, you better put ice on that. Yeah. Because like that is where the story moves from um, – it moves into Bill Clinton as pure sociopath. And that's one of these details. I don't know how to weigh it. I Like I can't say it happened or didn't happen. And again, I don't feel like I have any reason to disbelieve it exactly. I, I think it's a reason people have trouble with this story that they had gotten comfortable in a frame of Bill Clinton as like this like, kind of philandering dog, like mm-hmm. you're like, – like a player. And that story moves into rapist and on some level like sociopath. Yeah, and I think people um, like the feeling of being charmed by him as a politician, right? I mean, there's you know you, you hear this all the time. Like the, the sort of number one cliche about Clinton is that if he's talking to you, you feel like you're the only person he's ever wanted to talk to, and that you're the only one who exists in that moment. I think we enjoy that feeling when anyone can give it to us, um, and I think that obviously there's a lot of power in that in, in that uh, ability. I think. It's certainly not separate from what has made him a successful politician. That talent to connect with people, that talent to make them feel special. It's all seduction. It's all sort of a um, expert deployment of, of his power, his, his political power. I mean, and an expert deployment of his intellect and, and his perhaps his looks and his just his, his style, you know, it's, 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 those are all positive things for the most part. And so you're right that like, the image of Clinton as a 
a guy who is helplessly attracted to women and helplessly attractive to women is one that is easy to feel okay about or if you even feel good about. Um, and it's only when you see an instance of that ability being used for evil, you used, used to coerce someone that it starts to look dangerous. And I think that's why like the Lewinsky affair is, is in a way like perhaps the most just intellectually, just the most interesting one to think about, uh, because obviously his power was not incidental to her attraction to him. You know, the fact that he was the president was not incidental. And so Dan Savage talked about, about this when, when I interviewed him on stage uh, as part of this live tour we just did. You know, he was like, power differentials are part of romance in every situation, even in situations that don't involve such a radical power differential. And, and, and to deny that power dynamics are, are sort of inherent in sexual attraction is, is to deny reality. Um, I think there's some truth to that. Um, but nobody's denying that. Yeah. I, I like Dan a lot, so I don't want this to come off as me um, arguing with him. I was 14, roughly, when the Lewinsky thing hit its peak. And I didn't understand, really. I mean, I had the most... I didn't care on, on first on one level. Like, I was into video games, not, um, <laughs> not, not political scandal. But, you know, my parents were Democrats and, like, you know, like, leave the president alone. Like, you should be president. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a private matter. Like, I, I, I bought all that. When I was in my, you know, 1920 and getting into politics, I read a history of it. And I was shocked. Like, I, I was like, I was, I'm a kind of moralistic person. I was shocked. And now you were um, shocked, sorry, by the, by the particular. By the whole thing, like that it happened. Like, that, 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 <laughs> like the judgment in it, yes. the um, ab- abuse of power on a lot of levels, I, I thought, like abuse of like his power over her, abuse mm-hmm. of his power in the country, the lying around it. Like, I, like my view quickly became, and I've kind of held this, that, that he should have resigned. I think it's actually complicated whether he should have been impeached mm-hmm. um, because what they were trying to impeach him for, I don't buy this, mm-hmm. you know, you perjured yourself while we were asking about something we probably shouldn't have been asking about mm-hmm. in an unrelated investigation. So I'm, I, I have a slightly complicated view on that, but you should have resigned and Democrats should have probably made him resign. I do hold that view. And now I'm 34 and I've run a company. The idea it's unthinkable, yeah. right? Yeah. The idea that I would sleep with an intern? Yeah. I mean, it, it makes it so much crazier to me. Like, with every year I get older. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm not t- saying that power dynamics aren't part of sexual attraction. And obviously, like, there's a long history of, like, people sleeping with people at different levels. And come, like, I don't want to go too far on all this. Sure. But, but there is also a matter of judgment. And, and I think the issue, like, about Clinton and, and Lewinsky is not about the question of like whether or not power dynamics can be sexy, but whether or not a lapse of judgment that profound yeah. should disqualify somebody from the presidency. And like yeah. that, that's where I kind of come down on it. I, 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 I'm, All I'm, kinds of things are sexy that you shouldn't do. <laughs> right. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. I, and I think one sort of clarifying part of this story for me was realizing that his power, his ability to sort of set the terms of this relationship was total. And she was in love with him, but she couldn't call him. He called her, right? He was the one who would summon her. I guess she would try to sort of get his attention through contacting Betty Curry, his personal secretary. But the majority of this, you know, affair, this sort of on and off affair that had long stretches of them not seeing each other at all, she was miserable and she was in agony and 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 i think it was 
a direct function of his total power over over setting the terms of the relationship and and her agony and her her inability to sort of have any say into what was happening to me is like one strong argument for why you don't do this for with people who who you have such power over i mean it's i think inevitably turns into torture you know i think some people would say well that's just a function of him, him being married not him being president whenever someone is engaged in an adulterous affair they're the ones who hold the keys I don't know, maybe that's true, but it's just, as you say, like, there are very basic uh, decisions he made that are unthinkable. And I don't believe that it's just that the reason I feel that is that, oh, the times have changed. I want to believe that, it, uh, you know, if I was someone's supervisor in 1998, I would also regard it as unthinkable that I would engage in any kind of sexual relationship with them. There's something E.J. Dion has written in his book, How the Right Went Wrong. And he has this really interesting chapter on, on the Clinton impeachment saga. And he says that if Bill Clinton had been honest about what happened with Lewinsky from the beginning, he would have been forced to resign. That it was his lying, actually, that saved him. It was his lying that elongated the process, created time, created space for people's positions, defending him, attacking him to harden, made it more of a left-right thing, created time for conservatives to repeatedly overplay their hand. It got wound up in everything else. And I mean, I think this is something you do so well in the in the season where you show it, it also ends up connecting to things like government shutdowns and Newt Gingrich. And do you really want to give them a win? And there's this term in, in political science called conflict expansion. The zone of the conflict expands. It's not just mm-hmm. Clinton and Lewinsky. It's like, are you going to permit these tactics to work, right? And there's a version of this on the right just a month ago with Kavanaugh, where even people who are open to believing Christine Blasey Ford were like, mm-hmm. we can't let these tactics work, mm-hmm. right? We have to we have to show we're not going to let this happen. Um, th- this, is, this is just about they want to delegitimize Donald Trump and hold this court and get revenge for Garland. There's this tendency towards conflict expansion. But I've always thought it's really interesting, this idea that, you know, among the many things Clinton does during this is frontally lie to the public. And, you know, again, I, I think you can understand personally why he does. But still, he frontally lies to, to the public, to everyone, mm-hmm. to his own staff. And the idea that that was actually a good strategy, <laughs> that it created space for his defenders to come in, and then everybody was so locked into their positions that they couldn't get back out, and now you just kind of had to see it through to the end. Well, and they got used to it, right? Like, Yeah, I, I would that's be, the other thing. I'm skeptical that people really believed the lie, like that most people believed the lie. I, I don't have the polling numbers on hand, but... Most people you talk to who remember that period, they were like, "Yeah, it was it was obvious that he that he did this." And that's uh, interesting, you know. And there's a really funny piece of tape that we found. Maybe it doesn't mean what I think it means, but there's it's a it's a recording of a Pearl Jam show that Pearl Jam played the night of Clinton's confession uh, when he went on TV and said, "In fact, I did have a relationship with Monica Lewinsky." I guess as a ref- I think it's a reflection of how all-consuming uh, this story was at the time that Eddie Vedder, at one point during this concert, simply read Clinton's speech from the stage into the microphone. And the reaction from the crowd when he gets to the line, you know, and I don't have the exact words on the tip of my tongue, but when when he gets to the line where Clinton comes clean, there's just an, an explosion of applause and and, and uh, cheering. And, you know, maybe you can read it as, oh, like they're just cheering that Eddie Vedder mentioned 
sex. Um, and it's just sort of funny. But as I hear it, it, there's like a relief in it. There's a relief that, okay, finally we can stop pretending that we believe this dumb lie. This obviously, this thing that obviously happened, we can all just acknowledge uh, openly that it happened. And that's a pretty silly digression, I guess. Where but, did you but, find that tape? Um, all Pearl Jam shows are recorded. It's actually quite easy. <laughs> Someone on Twitter tipped us off to it. Uh, and once we had the date, it was easy to find. But I think like my roundabout point was just that like by the time he confessed, people had already forgiven him, you know, like they, they were yeah. they were ready. They were ready to just be relieved that that part of the story was over. Um, and I think it's absolutely correct. I haven't read the book that you mentioned, um, but I think it's absolutely correct that that lying and sort of kicking the can down the road and allowing time to pass during which people's loyalties could be sort of hardened and the specific accusation could become part of a bigger war in people's minds where they where they saw it as a as a battle that they needed to win for their side and to prevent the other side from being validated i think yeah that time was crucial support for this show comes from netsuite growth can be a beautiful thing like changing out your kids shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe but as a business owner you understand that growth also comes with complications And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the things that I find really interesting about this, that era as a lens on this era is the role of the Christian right in both. You talk a lot in the show about Bill Bennett, Mm -hmm. uh, who becomes the the chief moralistic crusader against Bill Clinton, you know, the chief articulator of the idea that to let this go 
represents a moral collapse in our nation and that the Democrats, the Republicans, the pundits, the elected officials, the aides who are doing that are complicit in something much more profound than they realize. And he's now a big supporter of Donald Trump. And I'm curious how you read that, like how you explain that progression. I wish I could have asked him that question. He declined to be interviewed, unfortunately, um, probably because he knew that I would ask him that question. <laughs> I think there's two ways to look at it. Uh, I'm inclined, and, and maybe this is like a reflection of me being naive and uh, sort of an insufficiently skeptical journalist, but I'm always inclined to think people are being sincere, even if they're wrong and even if they're deluded, uh, I generally take people at their word when they say they think something. And, and I say that like with the full understanding that a person thinking something can be the result of completely irrational, you know, emotional processing, right? It's not that Bill Bennett, if you were to believe that he was being sincere then and he's being sincere now, you know, it's not that he talked himself out of the principles that he was standing up for uh, when he was raging against Clinton, but that just like emotionally, he really felt it then and he and emotionally, he really feels it now. So that's one way to look at it, I think, that, that it's just it's just possible for, for one person to just be warped by circumstances, be warped by the side that they're on and, and the stakes they feel they're they're up against. I think the other way to look at it is that it's pure hypocrisy and opportunism. And I will say that Bill Bennett, and again, I haven't talked to him, so I don't, so I don't feel like I truly know this, but I think of everyone I talk to, I'm, I'd be most likely to believe that he was making a political calculation then and he's making one now because he thinks that the, I don't know, the policies of the Trump administration are ones that are worth making that concession for. I don't know. But I think of all the people I, I studied, I guess, and as part of making the show, I'd be most likely to believe that with Trump, he, he is just consciously putting aside his sincere beliefs and acting out of political calculation. What do you think? So I have a lot of thoughts on it. Uh, I want to read a tweet from Jerry Falwell Jr. This is obviously not Bill Bennett, um, but this is another actor in the Christian right. And this is just a, a month and a half ago, but I, I thought it was so telling. He wrote, and, and he's been a big Trump supporter. He wrote, Conservatives and Christians need to stop electing, quote, nice guys. They might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs real street fighters like at real Donald Trump at every level of government because the liberal fascist Dems are playing for keeps and many Republican leaders are a bunch of wimps. I feel like that's the sentiment you hear from people on the left quite a bit about Democrats, right? Increasingly, yeah. You know, like, I mean, this is a whole Avenatti thing. Yeah. That, that they've got a street fighter, so so Democrats need a street fighter. Yeah. But I think it has a different valence here a little bit, which is that if you're if you're a committed Christian and you follow the Bible, which is a very it's a very exacting document. <laughs> right? I mean, I I always remember a conversation I had with somebody who's a really committed Christian. And I was saying that, you know, there's a part of me that that really wishes I believed in, in Judaism and Christianity and anything because it felt like that would be easier. And they said, no, like, if you really believe, it's harder. Like, if you really believe, if you're really trying to live by these precepts, it's harder. It's the people who don't really believe who find it easier. And that's always affected me a lot. And there is a lot about upholding a difficult and decent and exacting moral code in the face of profound challenge 
in Christianity. I mean, it's one of the really beautiful dimensions of that religion. And I do think that what you've seen across a lot of the Christian right is a belief that it didn't work to try to be Christian in the public sphere. So the way to protect Christianity in America is to become and, and to back street fighters in the public sphere. And it strikes me as a profoundly irreligious, unreligious, like anti-religious statement. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I get what the logic is. Like to your point, I don't think it's insincere. I think their belief is that this is a war for a kind of survival. Yeah, it's like an existential. And they yeah. need the person who's on their side. There's this poll of white evangelicals. And it asked, this was in 2015, 2014, it asked, can you separate a leader's private conduct from their public reputation, uh-huh. from their, their public fitness for office? And only some, I think it was something like 30% said yes. And then in 2017, the same question got asked and 80 some percent said yes. There had just been this huge flip because they wanted to support Donald Trump. And like, look, like privately, like, he does not live by a by an exacting moral code. I'm going to put it that way. He's our monster, yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna go with him. I think it's sincere, um, even if it's also hypocritical. I don't think those two things are actually intention, mm-hmm. but but it does make it hard to know what to do with any of it, right? If political opinions are so far downstream from motivated reasoning. Mm-hmm. And so the opinions people are offering at any given moment just have nothing to do with the opinions they would offer if the party labels on the people were swapped. Then it's like it it, it calls, say, like my work very deeply into question. Like, what am I doing sitting around here chasing down all these arguments and trying to decide if they're true or false if nobody actually cares? (laughs) Yeah. And the argumentation is like it's like the shadows on Plato's wall of what's actually going on. (laughs) I agree. I agree with you. I mean, it's the capacity of for people to justify their desire to be on the winning side, their capacity to look past their hypocrisy in service of some greater goal, I guess, or just some emotional impulse or just tribal allegiance is scary. And it's uh, something that obviously I try to be conscious of in myself. And it does make you feel sometimes a little bit hopeless about, well, why are we even pretending like there's a role for, you know, rational argument. That said, like, society does change. People's minds do change, if only in the aggregate as, as generations fade away. And I got to assume, or at least I, I, I want to believe, <laughs> no pun intended, that, that there is some role for true persuasion in that process. So let me offer one of the arguments I've heard made by folks on the right about this, which is the left caused it, that it was what happened with Clinton. It was a complete absence of sanction and the discrediting of accusers, the the whole thing, that that's what changed the rules. And it's like with the left having made these new rules, the right has no choice but to act within them. That, again, I can't know what Bill Bennett would say to you. I think it is a remarkable turnabout for someone, but but I can imagine one version of it, and, and again, this is a version I have heard said to me, is it would be better if the world were not like this, but it's the left that proved the world is like this. And so we can't be the ones to unilaterally disarm. If the person who can appoint pro-life judges and try to protect religious liberties from laws that people on the Christian right don't like— 
if that person has a very checkered private history, well, we tried to build a wall and you guys knocked it down. And so here we all are now. And it's ridiculous for you to complain. It strikes me as absurd that we would start the clock at Clinton and not earlier. I don't know. I mean, uh, I just don't believe that, <laughs> that this was the first time that uh, either side, you know, was unwilling to hold their own to account that this was the moment when these rules were created or revealed. I just even just even just thinking back to George H. W. Bush and Ronald Reagan defending Nixon until it was no longer a viable political position strikes me as one example of out of I'm sure many when, you know, people were willing to look past stuff. You know, it's not like in the eighties and nineties Republicans were still apologists for Nixon by and large. People reached consensus that this was indeed uh a president who abused his power and, and deserved to be forced out of office. Like as far as I'm aware, no one no one held it against George H. W. Bush or Ronald Reagan that they were on the other side of that for as long as it was convenient. I mean, that's just one example. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know why you would start the clock at Clinton. What do you think? I don't think the argument makes sense. I think that it has, uh, I think there's an an emotional logic to escalation arguments like that, but but they don't tend to make any actual sense. I don't think that the Clinton situation is very much like the Trump situation. Um, and I, like, by the same token, I do think, if I'm trying to be generous to it, that there is a cyclical nature to politics where people are constantly feeling that they have to match what they think was done to them, which is usually something much worse than what was actually done to them or done by the other side. And that the only way they can possibly compete is through this like break, continuous breaking of norms. And I don't actually think it's true. I think people tend to overestimate how well the other side's misdeeds work out for them <laughs> rather than underestimate it. Like, like, if for no other reason, if Bill Clinton did not um, have this whole Lewinsky scandal in his background, given where the economy was, Al Gore wins the next election, right? Like, yeah. like all kinds of things are different um, if these sides don't, don't misplay their hand. Um, Donald Trump, I think a president who is not a street fighter like Donald Trump, I think is at 57% in the polls right now because unemployment is 3.7. And instead, he's at 44. And a lot of the lessons the Democrats are taking from him or some Democrats is they need their own Donald Trump. And I don't think that's a lesson of Donald Trump at all. Uh, I think that if Marco Rubio had been the Republican candidate, he would have beat Hillary Clinton reasonably easily, actually won the popular vote, been more effective and been more popular, and Republicans would be facing a better midterm. And so... I think people get this wrong, but I think that I I see this a lot, this this view that politics is like an endless cycle of escalation and you lose if you're the one bringing a knife to a gunfight, mm -hmm. even though like usually the people who brought the, at least in these cases of political scandal and surviving it, the people who brought the gun to the knife fight used it to shoot themselves in the foot and just <laughs> didn't quite die. <laughs> and so it's not such a great political strategy, but... But there's a real uh, logic of emotional response that I, I find people get trapped in pretty quickly. Yeah, and I guess the Republicans brought 
their guns to the Kavanaugh fight and they got a Supreme Court justice. Uh, so does that mean that next time a uh, Democratic president has the opportunity to appoint a Supreme Court justice who is credibly accused of sexual assault, they're going to just say, well, we got to do this? I don't see that happening. Let me make the argument for my version of this and then against it. There was no outcome where Republicans didn't get a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. I think they made a mistake. I think they should have taken Kavanaugh out and put in Amy Coney Barrett. Mm -hmm. And instead, they got an incredibly unpopular Supreme Court justice who is mobilizing Democrats to be much more aggressive on legal questions, on, on even issues all the way up to potentially judicial impeachment and court packing. But beneath that, it's really escalating the salience of the Supreme Court for Democrats in a way that long term I don't think is good for Republicans. I think the argument for this position is Garland, where mm. I think they executed a bit of constitutional hardball that, that was genuinely unprecedented. Mm -hmm that was genuinely shocking, mm -hmm. and they really did profit from it. And I think it would be insane for the thing Democrats learn, both on a moral level and on a political level from the Kavanaugh affair, is to uh, just, like, damn the torpedoes and appoint anybody, no matter how unpopular they become. There are real questions of, like, you know, Republicans actually did not believe overall Ford's allegations, and so, you know, that that's a, that's a separate issue in this, but... Mm -hmm. but Kavanaugh was a very damaged justice, and the way he ended up getting on was a very uh, damaging process, and I don't think it did Republicans actually any favors. But Garland did. Right. And so I don't think there's any doubt that if a Democratic Senate is looking at a, a vacancy on the Supreme Court that is being filled by a Republican, that that vacancy is not getting filled. Like, that, that's just – that is the lesson of Garland – you do not fill the other, like, <laughs> underdivided government. Supreme Court seats do not get filled. And, like, I can't say Democrats would be wrong to take that lesson. Right. It's not good for the Supreme Court, but it, it seems pretty clearly to be, like, what the politics of it are. Is the distinction between those two situations, Garland, Kavanaugh, is it just a matter of kind of the degree of, you know, nihilistic will to power? Or is it uh, just a, a question of like, well, these procedural rules were there to be taken advantage of and we'd be stupid not to. And that's not particularly an act of nihilism. That's just an act of good tactics. I, I don't think I would not call for what it's worth what McConnell did nihilistic at all. It was extremely principled. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the principle I wish he'd applied to the situation, <laughs> but, but it was extremely principled. Well, what was the principle? The, the, the principle was that we just can't have a, a, a liberal justice? Yeah, the principle is McConnell is in public life to affect conservative outcomes on public mm -hmm. policy. And flipping the Supreme Court from a 5-4 conservative majority to a 5-4 liberal majority, and potentially bigger than that after Hillary Clinton then gets elected— like, that's really profound, right? Um, like, that's a huge – stopping that from happening if you're, if you're in public life for the outcomes. It, the, the truth is with the Supreme Court, in my view, that we're actually asking a very unusual thing from politicians. It is not the thing we ask them to do in other spaces of their work, which is to put aside the ideas and principles that animate their work in public life and to act with the institutions and the political system as a whole in mind, mm -hmm. right? To suddenly zoom out from being 
uh, an ideologue or a partisan or, or, or just like an actor trying to make the world better in the way that you think would make the world better and all of a sudden say, yes, this person might rule in ways that I find detestable and in ways that endanger much of what I hold dear. But he's qualified or she's qualified. And so let's put them on the court anyway. And that is how we've done it. Although we did it that way when the parties were less polarized and Supreme Court nominees were less ideologically predictable. So there were sort of reasons it worked out. And now the parties are more polarized. The nominees are more predictable. They're more ideological. They're vetted more ideologically. And so now we're treating the process more ideologically. I think this outcome is pretty is pretty logical. Except that, I mean, isn't there an argument to be made that, like, by opening the door to exactly the, the move that you were just saying Democrats will, will inevitably take next time they have an opportunity, that, you know, creating that opening or creating that precedent was uh, self-defeating for the Republicans? That you're saying that it's crazy that we would expect them to do anything else and that it's not usually what we ask them to do. But, like, what's supposed to be the motive for... Um, preserving, you know, those kind of procedural norms is that we know that we want it to be fair next time we are in the when, next time the shoes on the other foot. Well, so I, I can't say the level of strategic thinking McConnell's doing on this. But but if I were making this a uh, an argument from pure opportunism, what I would say is that the Senate has a strong Republican bias. Um, the average state, according to Nate Silver, is six points more Republican than the nation as a whole. So you know, and, and you see this, right? Republicans have held the Senate quite a bit since 2000, but they've lost six of seven, the popular vote in six of seven presidential elections. And so I think that if the trade you're making is that, yes, Democrats can do this too, but it means that if Republicans hold the Senate, they have more power over Supreme Court nominees, that they're, you're shifting the, the balance of power on Supreme Court nominations from the president to the Senate. I think Republicans have a better like path to power mm-hmm. in an ongoing way in the Senate than they do in the presidency, mm-hmm. uh, given where demographics are going. Now, I don't know if that's how Mitch McConnell is thinking about it. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, playing for the next year as opposed to playing for the next decade or mm-hmm. for the next generation. But I don't think this was an obviously strategically dumb move. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it activated his people. They, you know, possibly helped Donald Trump win the election. I mean, I, I think the real, uh, among the many, many, horrors of the Garland thing, is that it worked? Is that it really, really, really worked? You know, and Mitch McConnell has, like, taken victory laps on it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this... Are you familiar with the whole infinite, finite, finite game idea? No. So there's this book. It, I don't know. It's a weird book. I recommend... I was recommended to people. Um, I heard it because I listened to weird tech podcasts and they all like this book. <laughs> but it's it's a book of almost, like, little epigrams. But it's, it's about... It's called Finite and Infinite Games. And the idea is that there are two types of games. There's the game where you're playing to win and the game that's a finite game and the game where you're playing so you can keep playing, right? The game where the point of the game is that the game keeps going. And the whole book is about detailing this and, and it ends up being a weirdly profound way of thinking about life. But there's a real question with American politics right now of are we playing it as a finite game where the game is to win like immediately, win right now, win the next election, and there's like good reasons for that, right? The stakes are often life and death. Mm-hmm. Or is the thing we're trying to do to make sure American politics remains stable in the long run, right? It's an infinite game. And so sometimes you have to let something happen that you don't like in the game so it can keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to, to some extent, we do this all the time, right? Like we have peaceful transfers of power, right? That's a, that's a way of treating mm-hmm. this as an infinite game. Mm-hmm. But I would say that we are 
beginning to push the boundary further and further towards finite game. Um, I think the Garland thing is an example of that. And, you know, the, the long-term consequences, I don't think we're, we're on the cusp of civil war or anything, but, you know, if things keep going like this for 20, 30 years, I mean, I think we could endanger the system in a pretty profound way. And, but it's very hard to say when the stakes are this high and the parties are this different that you should treat it as an infinite game and, like, you know, let the other side take over the Supreme Court um, when you have the power and you were elected exactly to stop them from doing that. Yeah. Do you think that um, that process that you said, if we keep going like this, does that is that a process that, that you think has a starting point? And, 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 and sort of secondarily, do you think it has gone in one direction only? And is, is it possible? For I don't, it? although I think you've subtly switched this podcast from me interviewing you to you interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to, I will answer this question, but then I want to make sure with the time we have left, I ask you uh, a couple more. Okay. I don't, I don't think it's one way. I would say that, um, I would say the logic of escalation is true on both sides. I think that there are real examples of Democrats escalating, like say the 20, I think it was 13 change of the filibuster rules in the Senate. That was a genuine escalation on the part of Democrats. Um, it made Republicans really angry. It's at the stage for them wiping out the filibuster on the Supreme Court. Now you could, if you're Democrats, right, you can say, well, look, in 2005, they almost took out the judicial foot, right? Like everything has its trace back. So it ends up being hard. I would say that Republicans have been like, two or three times more aggressive on this than Democrats, but it's not been the Democrats have been free of any aggression here. And this is related to a book I'm writing, but one of the things about it is this, this kind of escalation is rational. The parties are becoming more different. They're more ideologically different. They're more demographically different. So they pose much more of a threat to the other one's idea of the good society. It's a lot scarier for Democrats, for Republicans to be in charge now than it was in, you know, the 60s when Republicans had a lot of liberals in their ranks and that modulated and, and moderated the party and, and vice versa. So as the parties become more different um, on every level, they also become more threatening to each other. And so the stakes of who's got power and how that power is wielded become higher. And so what is made plausible by those stakes getting higher is like increases. And you know, it would be good to like take a step back and think about the system. But, you know, to your point about people being sincere, I also I also understand why why it's happening. Mm -hmm. But but this is this I think is a, I'm, I'm going to loop this back to, to Trump because I, I've tried to think about Donald Trump from the perspective of some of your uh, of your two seasons of Silburn. And one of the things I, I keep wondering about with him is it doesn't feel to me like all that much is hidden. Like you'll sometimes hear like, well, there are no Nixon tapes, but but there's Donald Trump just yeah, blurting everything I, out on Twitter, <laughs> saying to Lester Holt that I fired James Comey yeah, to stop the Russia yeah, investigation. Like, if that had been a secret tape, it would have been the impact would have been very different. I think. <laughs> I think that's such an interesting point too. Can you expand on that? Sure. I mean, it's something I think about all the time. That if the things that Trump has said, that says publicly without any shame or uh, or attempt to to disguise them were revealed through a back door where someone had to, you know, issue a subpoena or put someone on the spot in a, in a congressional hearing, the impact would be just vastly greater and, and, and it would feel like something had really happened. Um, if there had been a secret taping system in the White House that captured Donald Trump saying, well, of course, the Rosenstein memo was just a pretext and of course I was going to fire Comey anyway because of the Russia thing, 
like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being short-sighted and just like applying the past to the present in a, in a thoughtless way, but it would have been much more like game over than what actually happened felt, right? It felt like, well, if he's saying it, <laughs> how bad can it be? Like, how damaging can this really be if, if he's willing to just say it on public, on, on, in public on television? Do you think there's something to this idea that Donald Trump is able to effectively flood the scandal zone in a way where Watergate could be the news for a very long time? And um, with Clinton, there there were a number of things, but but they were focused on for extended periods. And with Trump, like you do have Mueller and Mueller is kind of working on his own schedule here. But his ability to just jam outrage into the system constantly, like a new one all the time, so that people don't have time to digest whatever had has just happened or just came out. It feels like it really changes the dimension. Um, or is that just us looking back on the past and seeing a lot of the things that were distracting us then falling away? I think it's definitely true. I mean, I, or at least like it feels true to me personally. I mean, I feel incapable of maintaining a level of proportionality, I guess, just because I, I, I can't, I simply can't react in proportion uh, to each thing uh, as they just keep coming. However, I often wonder if it was the other way around and it was, it was the Republicans who were dealing with a, a opposition party president who had so many scandals, would they be more effective at turning each one or all of them in aggregate into an effective political message. Like one thing that strikes me about like that pileup of very quaint scandals that the Clinton administration was dealing with in its first two years or so, uh, you know, the scandals that, that led to the, the appointment of Bob Fisk uh, as special prosecutor, Travelgate, where they like fired, you know, nine members of the White House travel office, Whitewater even, you know, which was turned into a major issue, but at, at bottom was was quite small, uh, and no one could even really articulate what the allegation against the Clintons was. How do they manage to make that stuff stick? And I don't know if it's just, oh, like, they're just better at repeating talking points that, like, maybe the left and maybe journalists who are predominantly liberal, like, they are somehow unwilling or uninterested in kind of doing, like, the work of propagandists where you can turn, you know, scandals into memes that kind of really stick into people's heads. I find that like right wing talking points about, say, Obama, like they just were stickier. They were just or about Hillary Clinton with Benghazi, like they just repetition was harnessed to great effect. And I, I'm not sure why that can't happen now with with all these scandals. Just pick a couple, you know, right? like make a big deal out of a couple of them if you want. But somehow that doesn't happen. And, and, and I don't know if it's because the system is jammed by by the sheer quantity of scandal or if it's something else. I do think Donald Trump is a genius in changing the subject by recognizing he can just change the subject to other things people are upset about. I, I think that if you think about how a Richard Nixon or a Bill Clinton tried to manage scandal, they're constantly trying to turn the public's attention to something good but a little bit boring. So mm-hmm. they, you know, Bill Clinton would want to talk about the economy, not Monica Lewinsky, right? Yeah. Or he would want to talk about, you know, what they were doing and building American leadership overseas. And Richard Nixon, you know, would hold these events about like um, Vietnam prisoners of war coming home or, mm-hmm. you know, he would, you know, he would he would go give a, a policy speech. And I think what Donald Trump understands is that the only way to distract from scandal is with scandal. Mm-hmm. And he's OK with 
there being negative attention on him. He just wants to control what the negative attention is about. Hmm. And so everybody's upset about this. Well, okay, well, he's going to call the media the true enemy of the people and say some stuff that really offends the media or he'll get into a fight with someone or, you know, he'll say something racist or bigoted or, you know, he's going to send 15,000 troops to stop the caravan at the border. So we stop talking about things he he doesn't want us talking about. I, I think that he's understood that it's like if something is a negative five charge, you can only replace it with like something that's between like a negative four and a negative six. You can't replace it with a positive one. And like that's a good um, insight about how the media works. And if you're if you're constantly putting things into negative five, there are actually reasonably few politicians, including among Democrats, who are willing to go there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, again, Michael Avenatti might be an exception. where He's like, I'm willing to like counter Donald Trump in Donald Trump's terms. And yeah. like, I think that will work. But one thing about how Democrats can't seem to control a message is that they're speaking within the normal range of political tone, which is like, let's say, like negative three to positive three. And Donald Trump is not. He's like at like negative seven. And so they just get they, they just can't get heard. It's like their their pitch is too low. There have been moments, though, that stick out, even, you know, even though it's been a whopping several months since they happened that have been memorable and and sort of jarring enough. I'm thinking specifically of family separation uh, yeah. and the Charlottesville press conference. Like those really felt different when they happened. And I can't say I understand why they haven't been sort of weaponized against him more more effectively, why that hasn't stuck to him or hasn't been used against him in a more sustained way. I do think he just distracts the Democrats, too. Like, they just they just get distracted. But I think something hard about something like the Charlottesville press conference, you could use it in ads if he were on the ballot. And, like, I think probably the 2020 candidate will. Mm-hmm. But nothing's happened with it since. Mm-hmm. Right. He doesn't keep giving that press conference. Whereas I do think mm-hmm. a, a great example of this is Stormy Daniels. It's just amazing to me that what has lasted out of Stormy, the Stormy Daniels lawsuit is her lawyer. Right. Not the political scandal itself, not the revelations themselves, not congressional investigations into the possibility that Donald Trump basically misused campaign funds or asked his yeah, or asked, or asked his lawyer to do yeah. so and, and, and reimburse him with campaign, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, Instead of like a lot of hearings about that, been, and again, if Democrats controlled the House or Senate or both, I think we would have those hearings. But instead of that scandal dominating the airwaves, we've got her lawyer who is like an amazing media personality. And But that's just like a weird thing, right? That's like not how you would have expected that to go. But it, I think it somehow speaks to something about this age where he can keep moving, right? He can keep bobbing and weaving with what's going on. So he keeps being relevant. But it's been very hard particularly without investigatory power, for Democrats to keep the focus on anything. I think one reason Mueller has managed to keep breaking through, and he's gone, he's gone quiet till the end of the election, but he keeps breaking through because he can set his own timetable. He can keep bringing things out. Mm-hmm. Democrats don't control anything. They can't. But if they um, – we're talking a couple of days before the election – so by the time I say this, like who knows? But until now, Democrats haven't controlled anything, so, mm-hmm. so they can't. Right. I feel like the subtext of, your, of, your, of, of this – question is is sort of what would a slow burn season about this Trump administration look like? Because yes. insofar as sort of the thing that we do when we are untangling these different storylines and trying to put them in the specific order so that we can highlight the hinges and highlight the levers that caused things to go the way they did, like it's really hard to know what 
will cause this story to end. Like of all the things that have happened so far, maybe we've already seen the things that will ultimately be consequential. Uh, and we just don't know yet which of them they will turn out to be. And so, uh, you know, people often joke like, oh, you should make the next season of Slow Burn about the Trump administration. I feel like it would be impossible right now because we have no idea. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that none of them will. Right. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that none of the stuff that's happened will, will turn out to be consequential. Uh, I feel like with with the one of the sort of giddy reactions to the Stormy Daniels thing was, gosh, won't it be something if against the backdrop of this like global scandal involving, you know, allegations of collusion with a foreign power? The thing that ends this thing is, is a affair with a with a porn actress. Like there's a there's an <laughs> there's something appealing about that as a, as a narrative you know, it hasn't played out that way so far. Uh, and I do think like one black box here is, is Mueller and what he will ultimately uh, render consequential through his investigation. But uh, gosh, it's I mean, that's in so far as I engage with the news uh, in a kind of vacuum, like an editorial vacuum where I'm just like, I just want to know how it'll turn out. The thing I'm curious about is what of the things that have happened so far, all of which seems so important while they're happening, but then disappear as if they're completely inconsequential, what will turn out to matter? That's what I'm curious about. I think that's a good place to, to come to a close. So let me ask you uh, what's always our final question, which is, what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Uh, do they have to be about... Uh, they don't. They, they can don't. be whatever you want. Yeah, okay. Off the top of my head, I'll say Quick Studies, the Lingua Franca anthology. is a book that I read after college that formed a lot of my, I think, instincts. Uh, as a, as a reporter, The Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris, uh, a book about Jeffrey McDonald and Joe McGinnis that sort of makes the case that Jeffrey McDonald, who was accused of uh, and imprisoned for murdering his family, actually either didn't do it or, 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 or most certainly shouldn't have been convicted for it because the evidence was insufficient. Errol Morris is someone I admire a great deal, and he has a line that he says a lot, which is nothing so obvious that it's obvious. I try to live by that, especially when I'm writing my podcast. Uh, okay, and let me think of a third one. How about uh, The Crime of Sheila McGough by Janet Malcolm? Uh, you know, she, she basically puts a microscope on a pretty insignificant case uh, involving a, a, an annoying lawyer, essentially, a lawyer who is who is, uh, became ensnared in the legal system because everyone found her annoying. And it's, and it's just a, and it's an incredible study of kind of how emotion and just human interaction kind of becomes the most important thing, even when you think you're at the whim of a formalized system uh, that should be immune to that stuff. Those are great. Um, <laughs> Leon Nafak, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. Thank you to Leon for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Kwan Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Monday. 